0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We've been talking about communion We did three weeks on our union with Christ. We did Romans chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 3 and John chapter 16. And and then last week we looked at Numbers chapter 12 and he said, hey, our communion with God has an outward effect uh, in terms of just our vindication before people. And now we kind of turn our attention to internal understandings. Uh, What what are ways that we can foster communion with God uh, through the, the practice of disciplines of various kinds. And so this week, we turn our eyes toward fellowship. I've been fascinated in the recent years to be thinking about this issue of tolerance. I'm fascinated by our current understanding of tolerance as as a culture. And I know we've all heard the kind of byline, uh, the intolerance of tolerance, or, or as some would say it, people want to have tolerance for everything uh, but what they consider to be intolerance. There was an illustration of this a few years back where uh, there was kind of a rising feminist movement and a group of Christian women kind of got together and they were going to march with this feminist movement, but because they were anti-abortion, they weren't recognized as a part of this feminist kind of understanding. And it kind of goes to show that if we don't uh, wholeheartedly agree, we don't wrap our arms around all of the concepts together, the world kind of tends to divide uh, from one another. See, what we're requiring today is a uniformity of thought to describe unity. If you don't arrive at the same conclusions about whatever topics the world wants to talk about, you will be ostracized and alienated. So if you have the sensitivity, the awareness, the mental acumen to arrive at this enlightened position, then from their perspective, you and I can get along, right? Otherwise, if you don't have the mental acumen, uh, the perspective, the awareness that is required, you are just categorized as ignorant. And you see, just as we look at this, how this way of dealing with complex issues is really about achievement. It's really about working harder to understand more, to arrive at a conclusion that puts you at this place of superiority. In fact, the whole conversation has the whole feeling of superiority or inferiority, doesn't it? And so we take a complex issue like race, and we say, uh, race, a correct understanding of race requires these things, and, and if you don't require, if you don't understand these things to be true, you're not on the same page with me, and therefore you are ignorant. Or we might take another topic, and we might say, if you don't hold the line, so to speak, you uh, don't see eye to eye with me, therefore you are to be rejected. You ever feel like that in today's world? here's the beauty of the gospel The gospel does something massively different the gospel the story of Jesus death and burial and resurrection tells us that our fellowship is found in a God who revealed himself he was not discovered he was made manifest Bruce Ware is a theologian, and he says this. He said, you know, you can have proud uh, historians. You can have proud scientists. You can have proud uh, all kinds of other disciplines, people who have pride in their work because they have discovered something. They have uncovered something. But you cannot have a proud theologian because everything he knows has been revealed to him despite himself. See, we are collectively this morning, as the church, sinners saved by grace, there's no achievement of thought that gets us in the right circles of the church. The gospel gives us an indissoluble fellowship, an unbreakable fellowship, based not on common merit or achievement, but through our inability See, the hope of the gospel is not to achieve some enlightened standard of knowledge, but rather to find fellowship in God's revelation of himself. And it's with that this morning that we want to highlight the difference of our fellowship. And as we turn to 1 John chapter 1, John actually begins his epistle with this concept of how we fellowship with one another And so here's our big idea that we think John is going to get to. He says, true fellowship exists under a common understanding of Jesus. That is that you and I can have this koinonia, this fellowship with one another, not based upon our understanding or based upon our righteousness or our good life or our socioeconomic standing, whatever else it might be. Our fellowship has to do with who Jesus is, pure and simple we're going to see this in two different phases. In verses 1 and 2, John explains the life. It's a kind of a euphemism for who Jesus is, and he's going to give this kind of description of who Jesus is. And then in verses 3 to 4, he's going to say why he proclaims the life. So John describes or explains the life in verses 1 and 2, and then he proclaims the life in verses 3 and 4. Let's pray one more time that God allows us to see from his word. Lord, open our eyes now. Let us see Give us a rich thirst for fellowship together this morning. And give us a high view of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you might receive all honor and glory in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So John explains the life in verses 1 and 2. Jody read it this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. See, John begins, and he starts by describing the life. And it's funny because when we look back at John's writings, we see that John has consistently described Jesus as the life or life. John 14, 6, we're so familiar with this verse. I am the way and the truth and the what? Life. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wake up, guys. Right. John 6, 68, Jesus said, Lord, or Peter says to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Jesus and life are always equated in John's writings. And so specifically, as we look at these verses, we see four things that John wants to tell us about the life or about Jesus. The first thing he wants to tell us is that Jesus is from the beginning. This is what he says as he opens the epistle. In the beginning was the word. Or that's how he opened the gospel. Here he opens it that which was from the beginning. See, Jesus was with God the Father all the way in eternity past. Some of us, we use the word pre existent. That means that Jesus was without beginning. If you read the Nicene Creed, it actually uses the language that he was begotten but not made. And it's an important distinction. It says that Jesus never had a time where he came to awareness, that he kind of woke up, so to speak. Jesus has always existed as the Father has always existed. And as he is of the same substance of the Father, he was never created. Jesus describes himself this way throughout the scriptures. When we turn to the book of Revelation, Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Revelation 1.17 says he's the first and the last. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. See, Jesus was in the beginning with the Father. And so because of that, he shares in that deity with the Father. You see, when John is saying that, that Jesus was with the be, or, with, or from the beginning, excuse me, he's saying that this life is deity. The second thing he says is that Je- Jesus was made manifest. That's what he says in the end of verse 1 and beginning of verse 2, which we have looked at, seen with our eyes, Looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. Jesus wasn't just there with God in the beginning, he was actually made visible to people on the earth. The word here is, is fenero, fenero, it means to appear. And it's used again in First Timothy 3, verse 16. He was made manifest, how? In the flesh, that when Jesus uh, took on flesh at the birth, at the incarnation, that's when he appeared to us. That's when we saw him. And so uh, the words uh, which we have Heard, which we have seen, which we have touched. They have particular meaning here in this book. Uh, that John is describing that he saw Jesus, that he heard Jesus, that he touched Jesus, that there was actually a progression there, that uh, Moses may have um, heard God speak on the mountain at Sinai. Moses may have beheld God's form, but Moses was never privileged enough to touch God. And so John is actually getting to this progressive statement saying, we've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. He is real and tangible. There's no way to say that Jesus was just a spirit. He was God made flesh. And the point is, is, just as John 1, 14 says, Jesus became flesh and he dwelt among us. Galatians 4 says that he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he was human, just like you and I are human. He was born in the likeness of man, according to Philippians 2. He was made flesh just like you and I were. He got hungry. He was uh, prone to sickness. He uh, had all of the things that are prone to humanity that define our humanity. So Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus was made manifest. And then in 2B, he says that Jesus was proclaimed. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. You see how this is kind of becoming historical, that Jesus existed from eternity past. At a particular point in 0 AD, he took on flesh, and then he was proclaimed by these witnesses When we walk through the book of Acts, we see uh, that terminology used in Acts 1-8, right? Uh, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Even now, Jesus has witnesses in us as we read the scriptures and we testify to the reality of Jesus' life and death. We are also bearing witness to who Jesus is. But the way Paul or John concludes this is so he says that Jesus was with the Father. Look at verse 2, the last phrase. It says, the life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. It's not simply that Jesus was preexistent. Rather, Jesus and the Father existed in a mutual relationship of love and delight for all eternity. Such that Jesus could say in John 10, I and the Father are one. See, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus presents his interest as so intertwined with the Father that he is in constant submission to him. We have phrases like in John chapter 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. See, when Jesus was with the Father, he had to be like the Father, and there's this perfect kind of communion and harmony between the Son and the Father that has existed for all eternity. And so what's happening here in these early verses is that John is testifying concerning Jesus, that this life, this person of Jesus is preexistent, that he was manifest, that he's proclaimed by his disciples, that he's one with the Father, But you and I are different. This is the life. For us, as we are separated from God in our sin, we tend to unite around death, don't we? That is, sinners tend to unite around sinful things. I was thinking this week about Romans chapter 1, verse 28 through 31. It's on the screen here. And Paul's saying this. He's given like this whole kind of uh, theology of, of humanity. He says the, the wrath of God is being re- revealed from heaven against all men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he describes all of these handing overs that God is doing. He's handing mankind over to their sinfulness. And it kind of culminates to this. And, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossipers, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's the longest vice list in the New Testament. And I just want to throw out that disobedient to parents is on par with murder, strife for all you kids here in the room, right? (laughs) He goes on in verse 32. He says, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Did you catch that? that? That we in our sin aren't just content to be sinners who are caught in our sin. We want to heartily approve of those who also sin like we do. As such, we collect together in our darkness, don't we? John says, in John, or Jesus says, in John chapter three, he says that men hate the light. And what we do is we try to collect together in the shadows. This is why we have uh, things like fraternities and chat rooms that can become such dark places. It's why we have terms like "drinking buddies" or "friends with benefits." Because we like to gather people together that do the same sins that we do. And we tend to press further and further into those sins when we find others like us. And so what happens is that sinners unite around sin, but they don't realize that they're really celebrating their own death. Isn't that what Paul says? And Romans 1 32 says, They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And so here we are. We're just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's let's live it up right now. Let's double down on our sin. Let's just push, push further and further into this sinfulness because we know death is on the other side. And so we aren't just celebrating sin together. We're celebrating death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. We celebrate our rebellion against God together. I think it was about a year ago I gave the illustration about a church in London that calls itself the Atheist Church. It's, it's a group of about 200 individuals in London that call themselves atheists. They gather on Sunday mornings. They sing songs. They give talks. They do everything that a normal church would do, but they do so absent of God because they themselves are in rebellion to God. We like to find birds of a feather, don't we? We resonate with those who sin like we do. And we resonate with the death that we celebrate. It's different here in this passage because John wants to testify to life so that we can enjoy life together. And when he gets to verses 3 and 4, he wants to show us and to proclaim this life so that we can have this thing called fellowship, so that we can have this thing called joy. And so look at verses 3 and 4 with me. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, John is passing on what he's seen, what he's heard. By the way, this is how we know Jesus today, isn't it? That these men, these apostles, they recorded what they saw and what they heard. They put it down into these New Testament books so that you and I are bearing witness to the things that John or or others, Matthew, have seen and heard. See, today we have a canon, a series of books inspired by the Holy Spirit given to the church. This is how we hear of Christ through these eyewitness accounts such that when Paul says that the church is built upon the apostles and the prophets in Ephesians chapter 2, we see the New Testament kind of fulfilling that role, that this book has become a cornerstone to the establishment of God's church. But John intends that that, that he would pass on these things for for two purposes— In verse 3, he wants to talk about fellowship. And in verse 4, he wants to talk about joy. He's saying, there's two reasons why I want to write this book that I'm about to write, fellowship and joy. Let's dig into fellowship. Verse 3 describes these two different areas for our fellowship with one another and with God. Look at what verse 3 says. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. That is, in proclaiming the coming of the life, that is Jesus, John anticipates this kind of fellowship together together. Notice that that John's not shy about his desire to have fellowship with other people. He doesn't kind of nonchalantly sit back and say, well, you know, if we have fellowship, that's great, but uh, I'm not going to push at it. So much of our understanding of fellowship is that very passive, non-directive kind of thing, isn't it? We say, well, if I go to church and I have a, a, a great relationship with someone, then so be it. But we don't do much to pursue it. And here's John saying, I'm writing this, I'm initiating this so that we can have fellowship. He knows that God has given us one another as a gift and he's pressing into that concept. 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. To be born of God is to love the people of God. And John is embodying this warm, inviting spirit of God, isn't he? Just as... The son and the father existed in all eternity with this love for one another. Now John is warmly inviting his recipients to share fellowship with him. Let me ask you something. Do you find yourself warmly inviting others to share fellowship with you? Is this a regular pattern in your life? Or do you tell yourself that that's not possible for you because you're an introvert or because you, you have these other difficulties in your life? God's made us for fellowship. Do you have regular patterns of seeking out that fellowship with others? What he does in, in the second half, and verse, the second half of verse three, is he tells us where this fellowship is rooted. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's to say that we have fellowship with one another because we first had fellowship with God and with Christ. The truth is that you and I can't have fellowship if there's no God that brings us together. Dan Kruver writes this in his book, Reclaiming Adoption. He says, The good news of the gospel is that God's gracious provision of adoption, irrespective of our grievous demerit, is the activity by which he enlarges the circle of his communion that has eternally existed between the three persons of the Trinity. You catch this image there, that there's the Trinity gathering, uh, holding hands in circle together, and God is now inviting the people of God to commune with them to actually exist with them. And what he goes on, he says, through adoption, God graciously brings us to participate in the reciprocal love that ever flows between the Father and the Son. What a massive statement this is. Now, because we have communion with the Father and with the Son, we have fellowship with God, that's how we have fellowship with one another. The thing that brings us together is not our like-minded socioeconomic status. It's not our like-minded politics. It's not our like-minded anything. What brings us together is Jesus. You see that here in in this verse? We have fellowship with one another because we had fellowship with the Father and with the Son before that. See, John's invitation here is like a plus one. You ever get those? When you were single and you were invited to a wedding, there was a a plus one card that you would get. That was the invitation you could invite a date with you, right? And so John has been invited into the fellowship with God, and what he's doing is he's extending that almost as a plus one. He's inviting you to come to the wedding feast with him. See, our attempts to invite others to fellowship with us are are mimicking the way that God has invited us into his household to share fellowship with him. So when John's writing, he's writing so that we can understand fellowship. But he's also writing for a deeper purpose, that we would understand how we can have joy. Look at verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. See, this proclamation for the purpose of fellowship is for the purpose of establishing rich joy in Christ. Because their fellowship is in Christ, it is the proclamation of Christ that leads to commonly held joy. Speaking of Jesus' sacrificial death and victorious resurrection brings joy to his people. Have you ever had that experience? You, you talk with a friend, you interact with someone, and you, you hear about their thoughts of God, and, and you're able to, to also speak back to them, and there is a fellowship, and you leave the, the conversation charged and encouraged. See, it's joy to find someone else that treasures Christ. It's, it's joy to discover new things about our God through fellowship with others. It's joy to hear of others' life and prayer and Scripture. It's joy to hear baptism testimonies. It's joy for us to hear of others' faith in Christ. So what's, what's John getting at here? How do we describe what John is saying in 1 John 1, 1 through 4? He's describing the pre-existent Jesus who was with God. And at some point in human history, that person of God was made manifest. And he was seen and heard and touched by his apostles so that they proclaimed to all the world about the life so that they could have fellowship and joy together. You see the beauty and the scope of this picture that John places in front of us. And it reminds us that life-giving fellowship centers on Jesus. Life-giving fellowship centers on Jesus. See, true fellowship with others flows from our communion with God. Let's just be open here. If you're not regularly cultivating patterns of communion with God, don't expect to find rich patterns of fellowship. Right? If you're not soft to the leading of the Spirit, if you're not ingrained in the Scriptures, if you're not actively prayerful, don't expect to get together with friends and have deep conversations about spiritual things. See, life-giving Fellowship centers on Jesus. But if we're indifferent or hard-hearted toward Christ, we shouldn't expect to have rich fellowship, should we? Have you ever noticed this, this, as you read through the Gospels, how often Jesus is at the center of a crowd? I mean, just a really fascinating thing. There's 88 occurrences of the word crowd in the Gospels, in the ESV. 88 occurrences. It means that Jesus is like the life of the party, right? Mark chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. I mean, the crowd is so big, Jesus has to get on a boat and push away from the shore to be able to talk to them. John chapter six. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Notably, you know, it's worth noting that some of the crowd that followed Jesus were people that were decidedly not like him. In fact, other people criticized Jesus because he hung out with tax collectors and sinners. That Jesus wasn't just kind of drawing people that were like him. In fact, he was really kind of magnetic to those people that weren't like him, to the fact that he actually describes himself that way in Matthew chapter 11, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you are familiar with Isaiah 53, you might object for a second, because at the beginning of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, The prophet writes this, he had no form or majesty that we should desire to look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He doesn't kind of uh, gather this posse of people around him because he's like Justin Bieber. He's not attractive. He's not good looking. He's not any of those things. What is it that draws people to Jesus? See, Jesus attracted others because of his communion with the Father, Have you thought about this? That Jesus has this perfect communion with the Father and he works these miracles and he teaches these things authoritatively because of the outflowing of that relationship. Actually, John 6 is is a fascinating chapter. And it begins with Jesus feeding 5,000 men in the middle of this wilderness. There's no food around and there's, you know, just a few baskets of loaves and fish. And and Jesus has the disciples kind of disperse all of these resources and they feed all of these 5,000 people. And and when that's over, as if that weren't enough, uh, what happens is uh, the disciples decide they're gonna cross the sea and they get in the boat and Jesus walks across the water. And when he gets to the other side, the crowds kind of figure out that he's left, and they go and find him on the other side of the sea. And they say, hey, Jesus, what happened? In verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, here's the fascinating thing about Jesus, is Jesus is constantly drawing people to himself with this this deep, deep, rich relationship with his father. But when they're In close proximity to him, he gently, lovingly points out their error. He invites them to consider how their heart is in direct opposition to the Father's. See, the truth is that you and I were made for communion with God, but we have something hindering us. You and I, we we naturally gravitate to communion with Him because we're made in His image, but we can't commune with Him because we have a sinful nature that kicks against God's presence. We love the darkness more than we love the light. And ironically, while Jesus' miracles and teaching drew people in, His loving exposure to the life of God pushed them away. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Is that in the midst of that pushing away, Jesus Christ died our death. Because we so rejected him, because he drew us into his presence with his deep communion with God and exposed our sin, we crucified him. And in his crucifixion, ironically, we found restoration. We found hope for fellowship with God and with one another. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just show us the the model of outgoing love toward the world. He actually made us people who could be outgoing and loving in Christ. Do you see that? That that the point this morning isn't just for you to be more outgoing in fellowship, more centered in Christ. The point for you this morning is to recognize that Christ has made you such that you're renewed and you can live in fellowship with one another. You and I can't make ourselves have fellowship with God. God had to initiate his fellowship with us, and he's done that through the person of Christ And even today, we are drawn by Jesus' majesty. We are exposed to his righteousness so that we can be restored by his death. What does this mean for us? We talk a lot about fellowship. talk a lot about relationship and friendship. And and what does this particularly mean for us? See, I'm afraid that sometimes we settle, settle for what we might call false fellowships for false ways of of thinking that we're in deep fellowship, but we're really not. One of the ways we see that is through theological camps. We like to make sure that those who we kind of rub shoulders with are are like-minded in their theology with us, and there's a point to which that's a healthy thing, but there's a point to which that becomes really, really unhealthy where we become so scrutinized about the theology of others around us that we actually are willing to divide fellowship with other people, brothers and sisters, that Christ has paid for. Sometimes we, we hope for fellowship in common political camps. We think that because we're a Democrat or Republican, conservative or liberal or whatever else it might be, we, we retreat into those like-minded camps that we find. And we think that we find security and safety in those places, and I'm willing to tell you right now with the ever-changing na- ever nature of our political landscape, that's not a safe bet. I was struck, as I was thinking earlier this morning, if you take a biblical principle like uh, being made in the image of God and you bring particular application to that, how a political camp on either the right or left will, will take a shot at you. So let's just take that notion this morning. Let's say, uh, you're made in the image of God, therefore people of all races are, are valuable. Therefore, uh, we, we should value uh, rec- racial reconciliation. And people from the right will, will get nervous about that discussion. Meanwhile, if you take that same concept and you say, we are made in the image of God, therefore abortion is wrong, all of a sudden everybody on the left is incredibly nervous about you. And one of the hardest things to do is to, to walk this line of biblical fidelity and, and not be beholden to a particular camp. You see how these political camps, they don't foster fellowship. They really foster is division and uniformity. We might find false fellowship in our social standing. We're in the same tax bracket. We're uh, of the same uh, school Area We're, uh, you know, like-minded in these ways because we basically have the same income levels, the same kind of materialistic goals. We have the same kind of upward mobility at our jobs, whatever else it might be. We, we find this false fellowship in, in being around people who are essentially like us. There's false fellowships to be found in, in school districts or sporting teams or institutions. You can find false fellowship in the... the uh, the Elks Club. <laughs> we, we tend to unite around a host of other things, and we say, I like these people because they think and act and, and, and become like me. And in the end, what really happens is, is you're just running risk of being left abandoned. See, if we're true this morning about what John is saying in 1 John chapter 1 true fellowship is found in Christ. Because it's only when we recognize that we didn't deserve the mercy and grace that we were shown in Christ, that God made himself manifest to us, and that the commonality we have has nothing to do with who we are, but what we found ourselves to be in Christ. We find true fellowship with one another. It's in that vein this morning. I just want to just step back and just become practical and say, what are some ways that we can try and foster fellowship? How can we pursue fellowship with one another? You might be a person who, who uh, you regularly have people into your house or you try and have lunches or, or catch up for coffee with other individuals. I would encourage you in those things, but let's not just be content to do that. Let's, let's try and push into regular patterns where we would fellowship with one another, where we would have commonality in Christ. So first thing, let's be people who seek to be authentic or, or genuine Jesus had some strong things to say to those who performed religious rites for the eyes of others, right? Uh, Matthew 6, in a couple weeks, we'll look and say, uh, don't pray in such a way, you know, don't fast in such a way. Jesus is is providing some guidance and some direction of not being inauthentic before other people by kind of uh, presenting yourself as something that you're not. Don't try to force yourself to have this kind of Jesus talk. My wife, when we... I first had kids, you know, and we would, I would sit down and try and talk to the kids about discipline or whatever else. My wife described that I had a pastor's voice, right, that I would kind of suddenly push into my pastor's voice and speaking with other people. Well, sometimes we do that, right? We, we become this kind of person we aren't really. We put on this spiritual air, and we try to be someone that we're not. The second thing, we can talk to others about what God's teaching us. You know the easiest ba- way to do this is just to simply just come out and say it, "I've been reading in the Bible that, and you fill in the blank. Not a, not meant to be anything that's overwhelming or self-righteous. See, the good, the good news, the, the good news is that the Bible's already profound, so you don't have to be. If you're willing to talk about what God's teaching you, you can just speak up and say, "I've been reading this in the Bible." And I think it means this. What do you think about that? You could also just talk about your circumstances. Hey, this is what God's teaching me in the midst of this difficulty at work. This is what God is showing me in my, my relationship with my parents. Or this is what God is showing me here or there. Finally, you, you can confess that you haven't learned much recently. You can be honest and say, you know what, I haven't been as disciplined in my time in the Word. I haven't found much. What have you been reading? How, how can I learn from you? Third, you can talk about your struggles, be open about your difficulties. What is it that's hard for you? How do you anticipate God's faithfulness in the midst of your struggle? What's going on with you? How, How do you see that playing out? But mostly, let's not be shy about talking about Christ. I feel it too, right? You sit down with somebody, and it feels a little awkward to bring up the spiritual elements, to, to talk about the spiritual realm, we feel a little, just a little bit hesitant, a little bit sheepish to talk about Christ, but what John is telling us here this morning is that our fellowship is with one another, and we all have fellowship with God the Father, and so we should be able to talk about Christ, shouldn't we? You know, the thing I love about Jesus is sometimes we talk about Jesus like it's a textbook, You ever notice that? We talk about the things of Scripture, the things of the Bible, as if they're removed from us, as if it's a subject to be studied. The truth is that human history is pushing us to this place where we will see Jesus face to face, where right now we interact with God, with the Father, with Christ, with the Spirit in prayer, that Jesus is someone who's personal, that we will hear and see and touch. Do you interact with him like that? Is your fellowship rooted in the way you talk about Christ? I know for me, I have a lot of room to grow in this area. So many times I'm content to have fellowship and to talk sports or movies or whatever else, and and I can grow in this area where just part of my conversation can say, hey, what's, what's God teaching you? Or to talk about what God's teaching me. Maybe together as a body of Christ, we, we should look to push into this. I think one of the things that God has given us here at Gospel Community is a rich sense of community. I love that about our church. I love how much we love being together. We, we miss our fellowship meals that we haven't been able to do. We, we miss our community groups. We miss some of the other programs we've had to cancel because we love to be together together but I wonder if there's not room for us to grow in this capacity to speak to one another in the beauty and majesty of Christ. I want to pray to that end, that God makes us a people that gather around the person and majesty of Jesus. Lord, we ask that now. We ask that you would give us fellowship with one another that's rooted in our fellowship with you. We ask that you would allow us to so identify of ourselves in Christ. That we would claim to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. That we would speak encouraging words filled with grace and mercy in the gospel. And that you would encourage our hearts and our minds. Isn't it? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to read one last passage from Ephesians 2. We raise our hands as a reception of God's promise to us. Uh, Paul says this. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Our fellowship is with one another because we first fellowship with God and with Christ. Amen? And let's go out with the gospel rich in our hearts and let's look to fellowship with one another. Have a great Sunday.